Welcome everyone to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. So much of getting the most out of college is thriving in your classes, finding a way to connect your classes with your passions, your skills, but then also connect those classes to a career. And if there's one thing we know about careers is that more and more of them have to do with gathering, analyzing, visualizing, making sense of data and doing it in a way that tells a story that motivates people, you know, to understand something, to buy something, to change. So I'm super excited to have Val Kroll here. She's the co-host of the Analytics Power Hour podcast. She's an optimization director at Further, which is a data cloud and AI consultancy. She's all about using data to achieve goals. And my goal is to learn about how people can tell stories with data. So welcome, Val. Thanks so much, Elliot. Super excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's an optimization director? How did you become one? How did you become a data analytics superstar? Yeah, well, it wasn't a straight road or path by any means. I actually went to Augustana College my freshman year thinking I was going to become a physical therapist. And because I started physical therapy when I was super small, because I had trouble walking and things like that, I had never considered any other career path because physical therapy was such a big part of my life. And I had such great relationships with those professionals. And it seemed like what an awesome role to be able to help little kids, you know, move better and participate in sports. And so when I got to organic chemistry, my sophomore year, that was a little bit of a surprise. It hit me like a little bit of a punch in the face. I had always done well in school, but for some reason I could not wrap my arms around how to be successful in this class. And there was just no amount of extra work or tutoring on the side that could make that happen for me. So I withdrew from that class and had this like existential crisis of like, who am I? Like, if I can't complete this class, become a physical therapist, but like, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my life? And so I actually dropped out of college because I was so disconnected from how my coursework was going to get me further in life because I didn't have this like goal anymore. And I felt really lost. So picked up a couple random side jobs while I was, you know, taking my sabbatical and finding myself. And one of those jobs was actually as a uh, visual manager, assistant visual manager at Express in Woodfield Mall. So if you're in the Chicagoland area, you know about the Woodfield Mall, big mall culture for sure. And in that role, I stumbled into market research. So you had to plan where all of your product was going to sit in a store. And so it was called a floor set. And so I would take a first pass at this and present it to my store manager. And then that would become how we would display all the product. What was interesting about our footprint at Woodfield Mall is because it's actually the biggest express in the United States is we had more floor space than what the plans from corporate would say. So we had to make a lot of independent choices. And so I would say like, okay, we're going to lay out all of the, the men's t-shirts on this table. And I present that to my store manager and they're like, no, no, no. Men's pants do not go on a table. Men don't have the patience to dig through a pile to find their size. You have to hang men's pants. So you have to find some 
different floor space to hang them. But wait, women will go through a pile? Well, at least more patients than men is what they that's, said. That's crazy. Patients <laughs> um, measured in pants. I love it. <laughs> Data is everywhere. I, I remember another suggestion that like these women's stink tops were going to go over here on this wall. And they're like, no, no, no. You have to put that really close to a mirror because women want to hold up a shirt to see how long it is on them. And so like these sell best when they're by a mirror. And I was like, first of all, it would have been super helpful if you shared all these rules before I spent hours putting together this plan. But okay, but who makes these? Like, where do these rules come from? And they said, well, there's actually a market research team that does studies about how people shop best in our stores. And they create all these heuristics for each of the the stores and, and how to shop again to optimize for conversions. And I was like, this is an entire job. This is an entire industry. And so immediately started reading up on that and was hooked. And so I started running experiments in our own store. And I'm like, okay, if our store is so different that we can't even use the plans from corporate, what if we put together these crazy options, but we put it all together on a mannequin to show the shopper how to pair an activewear tank top with a blazer and jeans. And blazer and jeans at the time was like not a thing. Or like, if we show the shopper how to pair it, will they buy it together? So on Saturdays, we would put the mannequin out with those three little uh, collections right by it. And on Sunday, we'd take the mannequin away. And so I was analyzing the transaction data to look at how often are those pieces sold together. And they did. We sold more of them together when the mannequin was present. And I was like, it's a new heuristic. We have a new rule. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So then I quit the job and went back to college. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. You're like working backwards, you know, you're finding what you're good at and have a knack for and care about. And then you're like working backwards from that to like backfill the education to get there. I love that story. And so market research, what's an optimization director? How do you get from one to the other? Well, so what's funny is it's actually a perfect blend of kind of some of the elements of the story I just told because the market research was a great place for me to start and really just get my bearings around data and how organizations can use data to make decisions. Because it's really asking your consumers or your prospects of your business some of their attitudes or perceptions or their relative awareness of different products and goods. And that can help inform strategies that a chief marketing officer can make or someone in a product role to decide what features should we be developing to really meet our consumers where they're at. And the roles that I started to transition to in digital analytics and now in experimentation is saying like, well, with the data that we have at our fingertips digitally, collecting it off of a website or a mobile application or even transaction level data from like business intelligence platform, how can we use that to help inform business decisions and strategy? So I spend my days working with different clients across financial services and healthcare, understanding how they can run controlled experiments across their digital properties to figure out how they can better deliver on their goals of, you know, maybe more purchases or more downloads or a deeper customer experience. And so It's really a lot about taking the heuristics and what's important to individuals and optimizing those for business strategy. So I really see that as the more linear part of the path of my career for sure. Right. I remember we were talking one time and you were like earlier that day or maybe earlier that week, you had found, you sort of like removed a couple of steps in the signup process and you like made it, you know, it was like you changed the drop down menu and like, Client made a million dollars or something like that, which is pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I would love to hear like a, uh, a real story 
about telling a story with data, you know, something that can inspire students as they're, you know, maybe they're in a data science class or they're in a statistics class or, you know, they're thinking about a class project. Inspire us with how you tell a data story. Sounds good. I'll share that in the context of some scars that I had created <laughs> through some, some bad experiences. And I love that this is something that you included in your book, Elliot, because I am actually convinced at this point in my career that my ability to communicate as an analyst is as important as the hard skills that I have in actually analyzing the data itself. Because who cares how cool of an insight I found or how amazing an analysis is if I can't communicate that to my stakeholders in a way that makes them want to take action or do something about it. It's like it never happened, right? So I think that that's like definitely something that I screen for when I'm interviewing people to join the team as someone who's really curious and passionate because those are, I know that we'll be able to teach those hard skills, but someone who really understands the importance of communication, it's just head and shoulders, like some of the most important things you can look for. So when I first started to come to this realization was right when I was first in one of my first experimentation roles as a digital analyst at the American Medical Association. And we were making a decision to free wall all of our documents that were downloadable on the website. So there's about 20,000 different PDFs or Excel files for like quick sheets that healthcare providers or nurses or medical students could use to assist them in their day-to-day -day or their practice or their process. And we really wanted to be able to have conversations with these different individuals who are accessing this content. So we thought, hey, if we have people create an account, then we'll be able to continue the conversation and, and message them and email them and, and form a relationship. So we put 20,000 documents behind a free wall and we held our breath and crossed our fingers that we wouldn't have too much attrition or our people not downloading the documents because that wasn't adding too much friction to the process. Well we had an 80% drop off. <laughs> so we were wow. preparing ourselves for like 50%, but it was actually 80. So a little bit of a surprise for sure. And we definitely didn't want to add so much friction that we weren't able to uphold the mission of the AMA, which is all about, you know, empowering and bringing, you know, information and best practices to help the, the medical profession. So we were in a moment where like, can we keep doing this? Is this even going to be a thing? So Herein lies the experimentation. So we were trying to do lots of things to alter the path of the journey through that process to really make it frictionless to make sure that people understood that this didn't mean you were becoming a member. There wasn't going to be a cost involved. Like, how can we communicate? We're just trying to set up a longer term relationship with you. And so I was one of the most junior people on this task force. And I was presenting the results of the three tests that we had run, where one of those three had a significant winner in helping remove some of the friction and our download, our, our download percentage was increasing. And I had a lot of members of our C-suite involved in this strategy kind of SWAT team when we were in our little war room and I was presenting and I started with one of the tests that didn't win. And so I was like building to this moment to try to explain like, but it wasn't a winner. And when I started sharing some of those moments, like there were some members of the marketing team who were like, wait, I'm not so sure that didn't work. And other people were raising their hands saying like, I, I kind of questioned those results or that percentage actually looks higher than that one. And I kind of like lost the room. Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't in control of the narrative anymore. And I thought that what my audience was craving was me to explain more of what I was doing as an analyst. And so I like hopped up to the whiteboard and I started drawing normal curves and distributions and explaining p-values. <laughs> 
And I turned around and not one person was looking at me and I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, this is what I thought they wanted me to do was present these test results. So the meeting was over. Like it, I meant the moment had passed. And on the way out, our chief operating officer, Bernie, passed me and he said, you know, you're telling me a lot about how to make the watch, but I just need to know what time it is, Val. <laughs> and I was, I probably stood in that doorway for probably what felt like five minutes, maybe it was actually only a, a minute and a half, but I was like, oh my gosh, it's like clicking. There I was is, not yeah. telling the story that these people came to hear. Yeah. So that was like, it was a big revelation for me in thinking about how do I not try to educate the room to do my job or to become an analyst, but instead to share the part that gets them excited, as excited as I do about my piece. How can I get a marketer or someone who's in the C-suite to feel connected to the outcome, which was, I think we have a way forward. Everyone in the room could have gotten excited about that, but that's not how I told that story. Oh, lead, so. lead with Ooh. that. Like, you're all worried about this problem. I think we have yeah. a way to solve it. And now they're yeah, all leaning I buried in, that. Right. That was like yeah. slide 30. All right. So tip one is don't bury the lead. What else is in your data stories toolkit? What I was kind of just sharing there a little bit too about your audience. So thinking about the message that your audience came to hear and don't try to make everything about education because mm. whatever role or whatever job you select, like you're going to have something that you do that's different from everyone else in the team, which is why you're a part of said assembled team. But you don't need to take everyone on the journey of how you arrived at your conclusions for people to be confident in what you're sharing. And so again, like think about your audience and the message that they came to hear and, and the message that's going to help move the business forward and try to be really concise around that because then that's how you're going to keep them focused and on your point and you're going to build some of that consensus and and see some of the impact of the work that you do. Yeah, starting with the audience and not bearing the lead, I think is such good advice. It resonates with me because, you know, I've been doing similar work for a long time. And a couple months ago, co-authored a white paper where we looked at sensor data from 38 different universities. Our analytics team's awesome. They like generated a gazillion different graphs and all this interesting stuff. And like we ourselves were getting lost in it. And my colleague, Julie said, you know, how do we make this useful for people? And then we said, well, why don't we think about the decisions they're trying to make? And we came up with the big decisions, like, do we close this satellite library that not enough people are going to, do we rebalance the library to have fewer stacks and more seats? You know, do we bring in these student success functions that help students writing communication data? Do we change our operating hours based on the foot traffic? And then we just said, okay, what can we say to help somebody make these five or so decisions? And we put those right at the front of the white paper. And I think it, it just like totally cut to the chase and made the yeah. thing way more useful. Cause it was like, here's answers to the questions you have. So I, I mean, this is my own personal experience and bias coming through a little bit, but I, that really resonates with me. So like, okay, you, you got your audience, you know, you're leading leading with the lead, you know, pun intended. What do you do next to tell a great data story? One lesson that I also try to impart on a lot of our junior analysts where I work is to remember that you're delivering your presentation and that your slides aren't your presentation, that they're there just as a support to you, that Ooh, you're the storyteller. That. So like keep them hooked, right? And don't underestimate certain things like using gestures or the power of a pause to really yeah. keep people like hooked on what you're sharing. So 
there's a lot of tactics that you can start to brainstorm and think about. Again, if you think of yourself as the presentation and the storyteller. Yeah. Your slides are not your presentation is like gold. That's really good. I feel like we should <laughs> stop now, but we should keep going. What else? Well, and just kind of off the back of that one is a lot of times people create slides because they think, oh, I'm going to send this out either in advance of said meeting or I'm going to pass it along as a follow-up and I need it to stand alone on its own two feet, even if I'm not there for the voiceover. And I would argue that you could put that into a Word document. You could summarize that in an email. Like there's lots of different mediums that you could use and that your presentation slides don't have to be the leave behind. And when you decouple those things, I think you like let go of some baggage of like, well, I have to add this footnote here or like give the breadcrumb back to what the section header is so that if this is the only slide that someone was looking at or if this was screenshotted, that it could stand on its own two feet. And I think, again, if you kind of decouple those, then there's like a little bit less weight on like what that has to serve, like the purpose that that has to serve. Right. So not only is your deck not your presentation, it's not your pre-read or your leave behind necessarily you know, use it as a tool, what it needs to do and use in concert with other tools like you yourself and, you know, your email before or follow up or whatever it might be, Slack, whatever. I love that. Keep going. I would say one more trick that I definitely have added to my tool belt, especially when I'm like presenting to clients is just remember the context. So if, if a client has asked us to take on this analysis or to help them solve this problem, like we're going to go back and do some diligent work. And we're going to be deep in it for those next couple of weeks before our next touch point with that client. And so if I were to start those meetings and say, here's what we found, and it just launch right into it, they've moved on in those next two weeks as well, right? Like they have their own priorities. They've been pulled into lots of meetings. They've been asked to weigh in on 2024, 2025 budget planning season, whatever it is. And so just remember that there's a lot of value in like, just want to level set on like where we were when we decided to move forward with this, or here's what we heard in our last conversation. And it's just kind of like repeat some of that back just to ground everyone and where you are, because people will have trouble holding on to the thread if they're worried about, you know, even remembering some of the specifics of why you're here or why you've made some of the choices that you did. So if there's any kind of level setting that you can do to really just make space as a foundation for what you want to build upon in that story, then again, it's like whatever you can do to unload anyone's mental weight outside of what you're saying in that moment, it's, it can be a, a powerful tool. So again, just preparing everyone for the presentation that you're about to have or about to deliver. This is really great advice. I've learned a lot. I would love to end with your suggestions on where, you know, students or maybe the folks that help them and work with them on a, on a campus, where they can learn more. Like, obviously they can check out the analytics power hour you know, are there books, are there videos, are there resources that you recommend for, you know, students to learn more about telling stories with data? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to seem like one extra thing on your to-do list that you really don't want to get to or prioritize if it's something that can also be intertwined with something that you like or you're passionate about or interested in. So, if you're wanting to play around a little bit more with data or get more solid in some of those skills, try to think of a way to do that that's exciting. So one suggestion is in this new realm of data privacy and data ownership, a lot of organizations have to make transparent to you what data they have on you and what data they've collected on you. So one consumer-facing example of this is when Spotify delivers its wrapped at the end of every year. 
that's really Spotify's data that's collected on you about your listening behaviors. But there's way more data that's collected about your listenership than what's summarized in RAP. So maybe you download your Spotify data, you download some of your friend's Spotify data, and you try to aggregate some of that and really ask yourself some questions, starting with who's the biggest Swifty for real? Really kind of nail that debate down. (laughs) But that way you're starting to build into some concepts like playing with formulas in Excel or comparing averages across different users. And so there's a lot of things that you'll probably end up Googling as you're playing around with different formulas and functions. But again, it's, it's in a fun way rooted in some questions that are interesting to you. So that's probably my tip number one. And then number two is another one that's pretty accessible but ends up being a great lesson for me is Philip Bump of the Washington Post does a newsletter every Saturday morning called How to Read This Chart. And so if you sign up for that, you're not going to get blasted with a ton of emails, but every Saturday morning, he has a nice little succinct newsletter where he takes a chart that he saw out in the wild in the media in the past week, and he breaks down how you can read it. And he gives some commentary on maybe how the data is skewed or if there's bias that he sees or um, if they're not really following some best principles from a psychological perspective. And a lot of times he gives commentary on how he might improve the visualization. And so it introduces some concepts that might be like super boring if you're reading in like a sterile textbook, but in the context of this chart, it can really kind of bring it to life. So those would be my two tips. Those are two great tips in a conversation that was really filled with great advice. And I really appreciate your time and your insights and your stories. We're going to be on the lookout for your data stories. Thank you, Val. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts and check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book.